Hello and welcome to On Liberty, coming to you live from the Centre for Independent Studies here in lockdown Sydney. I'm Glenn Fay, your host for today's episode. I'm filling in for our regular host, Salvatore Babonis. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Anthony Dillon. Anthony is postdoctoral research fellow at Australian Catholic University and the author of the CIS paper, Indigenous Suicide, Finding a Catalyst for Action. Anthony, welcome back to the CIS. Hi, Glenn. Good to be back. Right, glad to have you. Anthony, look, to kick us off, you've been involved in the Indigenous affairs space as a researcher and a practitioner for more than two decades. Over that time, what, what's, what's really, what really strikes you in that space in terms of the key observations you would make? Uh, look, uh, sadly, the observations and claims I was making 20 years ago are pretty much the same ones I'm making today. You know, political correctness, being distracted by trivial nonsense rather than focusing on the problems which we know need fixing, you know, just getting that, that, that sector of Indigenous people that are living in poverty just to get them living in the sorts of uh, environments that you and I take for granted. Um, but, you know, it's, that's been sidelined. We've focused on being upset by cartoons, upset by blocks of cheese, whatever. Um, so it's still the same. So I find that a little bit disappointing. Why, why is it still the same issues? I mean, why do you think that we're still talking about the same things as 20 years ago, perhaps more? Because it's so much easier, virtue signal, and just say, you know, this cheese is upsetting, Australia Day is upsetting to us, uh, whatever, to fix up housing and environments and health and employment. They're tough things to do. But isn't that what closing the gap, for instance, was set up to do? I mean, there's there's a whole range of priority areas that have been identified and, and you know, many, many groups, of course, have been consulted and, and many governments have agreed that there's a set of priorities that must be addressed nationally and, and, and all around the country to address disadvantage. How can it be that after all this time that, that's, you know, those issues are not getting the attention that they deserve on the ground? Okay, well, uh, first of all, you know, some people are benefiting, some people who need those programs in place are benefiting, but many are not. And what's happened is with the Close the Gap, we just look at the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. But in actual fact, it should be the gap between those Indigenous who are doing well, like myself, and those Indigenous people who are not doing well, like the ones described in the latest CIS, um, you know, YouTube clip. Desert Voices. And so we've got what, what I call an, an internal gap. Okay? If you just focus on Indigenous and non-Indigenous and look at the average for Indigenous, you can increase that by, you know, helping those who are already doing well. But we really should be looking at the end of the spectrum at those Indigenous people who are not doing so well, you know, those who live in those appalling conditions and help those. So closing the internal gap. Does that make sense? Look, it does. So, so let's let's so who so let's let's sort of narrow that down for people. So, where where are the where are those primary gaps that you're observing internally? What what are can you narrow that down for us sort of geographically, demographically? Who are we talking about? We already generally speaking, and of course there's exceptions, but generally speaking, um, like Nicholas Rothwell said in an article in the Australian a decade ago, it's about place, not race. So, generally speaking, those who are living in remote areas. Like I spoke about in the suicide paper, 
the city cousins are generally doing quite well. The ones living in remote areas don't have access to the sorts of services that you and I take for granted. So you picked up on this on the CIS paper there, which was, of course, a really important deep dive into the issue of uh, Indigenous suicide. And I recommend all our viewers to check that one out. Uh, so one of the issues you raised in that paper was was around politicisation, and I'll quote I'll quote it here for our viewers that are following this. So you argue that the politicisation of the issue uses the problems Indigenous people face today as an excuse to make accusations of systemic racism, claims Australia is an uncaring society, and portrays Indigenous people as vastly different from other Australians and requiring a separate set of rules to live by. Why is an issue like suicide, which is obviously so fundamentally important, why is that an issue that, that would be subject to politicisation? And does that in any way make meaningful improvements to people's lives? Uh, look, again, people would rather deal with the easy issues. And, you know, we know the tough issues that you need to address in order to um, bring down the suicide rates, you know get people out of poverty, get them into jobs, as we've already spoken about. But also, no one wants to talk about the high rates of sexual abuse, which is a contributor um, to the high suicide rates. And it is just so much easier to blame this on a, you know, a faceless entity like the government or the white oppressor, something like that. You know, it makes a person feel good. They think they've revealed a problem when in actual fact, They've, they've done nothing. Just saying it's the government's fault is really quite meaningless. And if, unless you're going to name names within government, it's quite useless to say, you know, government or systemic racism. Uh, we need specifics because the people who die are specific people. Well, I mean, is, isn't this true of so many areas? I mean, of all policy, but, but particularly the area of Indigenous affairs, that, that structural issues are often blamed, you know, that as you say, faceless entities, you know, the, the issues are often, you know, the, the, I suppose that the individual agency and role of, um, of organisations, individuals, um, associations are, I guess, the, um, undermined by explanations that rest on some big other, something that's beyond the, that role of individuals. How is that, how is that, why is that a dominant narrative? Again, because it's easy, it's been going on for so long, and it's just so convenient. Um, and, you know, it takes a bit of guts to identify individuals, but to just say, you know, it's the government or whatever, um, you know, it's so so casual. You can't sort of really prove it, can't really disprove it either. So it's just a, another cop-out. Uh, and you know, while we do that, uh, individuals are dying. And, you know, as for real racism... You know, like refusing an Indigenous person service, um, that sort of thing, banning them from accessing services, that sort of thing. That is all but gone. I mean, there may be traces here and there, but it's, you know, it doesn't happen uh, very often at all. And so, therefore, we have to, given that it's, it's largely gone, as Thomas Sowler said, you know, it's, it's there, but it's on life support. We have to default to systemic racism, institutional racism. Again, it, you know, not something you can really, it's like trying to nail jelly to the wall. You can't sort of really identify it and grab it and say, okay, that's a problem, let's fix it. It's quite invisible, isn't it? You know, it's, it's an invisible, intangible 
target. Um, but I suppose the, 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 what's despairing about that, isn't it? That, that because it's an invisible, intangible entity, it's very hard to develop a solution, isn't it? I mean, you, Absolutely. unless you can directly make a call for something to change, that, that, that seems to be putting off meaningful change to the never-never. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. While you focus on those sorts of intangibles, waffle, the real things that could be done, you know, um, community harmony, getting people into jobs, fixing up houses, investing in quality schools and that sort of thing, get sidelined. Do you think, so you mentioned before that, that government is often lumped in as one of those that in that structural camp of things that are, you know, that, 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 that other is there, is there, is, do they have a point though? Do some of those, do they have a point that is government often to blame in some respect too in, when it comes to these problems? Yeah, look, I mean, government are not perfect and there's always room for improvement. Um, but a bit of work I've done with government, it's interesting to see that they are doing a lot. There's lots of programs they're putting out there, they're paying for, they're evaluating them. The public don't get to hear about that. But where government can improve, yeah, certainly. Um, a bit of backbone, for example, not bending to political correctness and that sort of thing, um, not being um, fearful of being called racist and that sort of thing. So they can certainly toughen up um, in that area. So for those of us joining us live, uh, a shout out to all of you there and including Anthony, thanks for saying hi. Uh, for, those, for those that have a question for Anthony, make sure to send your questions through in the comment box. We'll look to get to those through the course of our conversation. Anthony, you've, we're talking currently in the middle of NADOC week. Now, NADOC, of course, is an important time in the calendar for recognising, celebrating successes of Indigenous cultures and people. Is it also, though, not a little disingenuous, though, when we focus on some of those elements, when the elephant in the room really is that there's so many communities where all isn't well? that things are, are going very poorly and there may be almost few or no examples of success or paths to success for some of the, some individuals and communities. Would you, would you, would you suggest that there's an imbalance in the narrative on Indigenous affairs? Yes. Whenever a, a point like the one you've made, it's made, you'll get people say, oh yes, but people can, can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think, well, yes, they can, but I don't see them doing both <laughs> things at the same time. And, you know, I'm all for NADOC celebrations. And I'm even, I wouldn't say for, but I, I wouldn't oppose someone if they want to protest about Australia Day, for example, so long as they or someone else is also addressing those serious real problems that we've spoken about. Um, so can both occur at the same time? Yes. But do they occur at the same time? No. Or, you know, there's definitely large imbalance where we see people very visibly out on the streets, social media, protesting, you know, the myth of death in custody, for example, Black Lives Matter, Australia Day, Coon Cheese, we, we see that very visibly. But as for fixing up these elephants in the room, sexual abuse, for example, uh, just getting communities to a standard that, um, you know, that's equal to any other part of Australia, no, we don't see anywhere near as much energy invested in those areas. So on that point, so the CIS has just recently released this week, and, and Anthony referred to that earlier. That's a video called Desert Voices. Uh, so I'd encourage you to check that out on our YouTube channel. 
that video is based on a series of interviews uh, conducted on the ground in the Northern Territory that helped to bring to life some of the issues that Anthony's talking about today, and also that Jacinda Price, our Indigenous Affairs uh, Research Director, often, uh, often addresses in, in her work. So please do check that one out. Anthony, you, you often, you, you've highlighted a few myths through your comments so far. Um, that, that's, that's included, you know, you, you've, uh, well, I suppose, as far as myths go, what, what, in a time when we talk about truth-telling and the importance of truth-telling, you talk a lot about myths, uh, myths in Indigenous affairs. How do, we, how do we square those things? By exposing them. Uh, and I'm happy to name a couple, if you like. <laughs> Let's go for it. Yeah, well, uh, for example, uh, you know, Australia has a, has a past. Uh, we know that the British invaded, et cetera, et cetera. And I have no problem with that being spoken about. And it is spoken about. However, what I do oppose is when people say, Aboriginal people cannot move forward. We cannot heal until past is spoken about. Well, I'm sorry, but many already have moved ahead and are healed. We do speak about it anyway. So don't play that game. Uh, speak about it if you want to and you know, have a day of uh, acknowledgement if you want to, but don't make it an, an excuse for not getting food on the table, adults into jobs, that sort of thing. The other myth um, which you know we're kind of not allowed to talk about, but I'll tread lightly here. We're, is, we're amongst friends here, Anthony. So, so go for it. And I, well, I, I hinted on this before. Where I said that internal gap. Okay, uh, those Indigenous people who are doing very well, uh, like myself. You know, I know where my next meal is coming from. Uh, I can go to bed at night and know that I'm not going to be bashed. And then you got those other ones. You know, at the other end of the scale, which was spoken about in the voices in the desert who are not doing well. They sleep, you know, on a mattress with 10 other people, don't know where the next meal's coming from, that sort of thing. So it becomes a problem when you lump all those people together and call them Aboriginal people, okay? Uh, you, know, you know, and in one sense they are, but you can't just deal with them as a, an homogenous group. You've got to be prepared to say, again, as we said earlier, but, you know, where are those people geographically who are not doing well? And think, okay, they're the ones we're going to target our resources on. They're the ones which we're going to fix up the homes and the communities and that sort of thing. But the other ones, the city dwellers, play Aboriginality if you want, that's fine. Play Aborigine if you want in festivities, that's fine as well. But when it comes to using national resources, national resources and focusing attention, let's do it where uh, the need is, is greatest. So uh, recognise that within under the umbrella of Aboriginal, there are many who are doing really well. We can leave them. The ones who are not doing well, that's where we need to focus attention, which is what CIS does. Well, it's, it's just it's a quite hard thing to do in, in from a policy perspective, isn't it? I mean, you're obviously not going to go down the road of, um, I suppose, applying you know hard testing on on the on those issues. But I suppose in, in so many other areas of social policy, we do have directly we do directly target groups of interest um, in, in, in all kinds of interventions. Is, is, it, is this one just too sensitive for policymakers? Uh, it is a bit sensitive. And, you know, you'll get the, the white urban Aborigines saying, well, you know, um, you're either Aboriginal or you're not, and I'm Aboriginal, and uh, we're all together, don't separate us, blah, 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 and our needs are just as real as their needs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
yeah, your needs are just as real, but your needs are being met. It sees other Aboriginal people whose needs are not being met. But like I said earlier, generally, with exception, of course, they're in remote areas where they do not have access to the sorts of services that you and I and the, the you know, urbanised Indigenous people take for granted. Well, I mean, if, is the issue remoteness then? Is, is it purely an issue of remoteness? I mean, I, my, my pushback on that might be that there are plenty of of other of, of non-Indigenous Australians that that are that are that have um, achieving success and and um, prosperity in remote areas around Australia all the time. And and in education, when we look at this, there's the gap between non-Indigenous Australians and between the cities and remote. While it exists, is certainly nowhere near the gap that we see when it comes to the education of of Indigenous children. So why is it that remoteness seems to play a factor for Indigenous students in education, for instance, or other outcomes, but not yep. so much for other Australians? Yeah. Um, well, I guess, you know, often in remote areas, the non-Indigenous people who are there have come in from the cities to look after, you know, administer programs and that sort of thing for the Indigenous people there. Um Often for those Indigenous people in remote areas, uh, their parents aren't well-educated. Um, so you've got that sort of confounding problem as well. Does that make sense? It does. Anthony, I've got a question from an Anthony in the audience for us, and that's to what extent does welfare enable people to avoid the uh, personal responsibility? Yeah, look, good question. And I think Warren Mundine answered it really well. Uh, when it comes to remote areas, uh, especially with employment, warrants the voice we should be listening <laughs> Quite, to, yes. I think. Um, you know, we should make him Minister for Employment in remote areas or, or something like that. But he said the, the um, I think he said, you know, the, the welfare net should, um, it's, you know, it's kind of meant to be a safety net, but it's become a hammock. Somewhere, you know, they've got a bit too comfortable. Uh, he said it should be more of a net or a trampoline where you can bounce out of it. Yes. In something. So, yeah, uh, welfare is certainly necessary, but the, it, um, and it can be a circuit breaker. It can get people through rough times. Um, but if, you know, if you've seen aunts and uncles and parents on welfare, not accessing opportunities, well, then there's a good chance you could fall into that as well so uh, if we have welfare that's fine but we also need to have other schemes that are providing incentives or encouragement for people to get off it and you know if not for the older generation at least for the younger upcoming generation uh, just say look you know you don't have to go down this path you can also do other things as well well I mean it's often I suppose in some ways the cop out but does it not always start in school I mean that the issue that, that we've identified in recent CIS research is, is really that attendance, attendance disparities emerge from as early as year one. I mean, yeah. if you're starting a, a pattern of, of poor attendance from year one, of what hope have they got when it comes to, um, to having a successful journey, one, through school, but also post-school? Yeah. And even the, the, some of the data show that even before grade one, if uh, in preschool and, and kindergarten, if you can get regular attendance there, it sets up a pattern for school. So part of that is 
uh, getting the parents on board to let them know that, you know, school is a good thing for you and it should be intrinsically rewarding. Um, so, you, you know, we shouldn't be reliant you know, on too many financial incentives for parents to get their kids in school. But, you know, hey, this is a good thing. It can break the cycle. Um, so get parents on board where they insist that their children are in school. I'll do a couple of shout outs here as well. So Anthony's referred to Warren Mundine's uh, work on employment in remote Indigenous communities. Uh, you can see uh, Warren's recent paper for the CIS that, that uh, provides a model for uh, entrepreneurial business creation in Indigenous areas, uh, Indigenous communities, and also his uh, article in the Financial Review this week that, that also makes that point really forcefully. I've also got another question from an Anthony in the audience for you, Anthony. How much of a factor is how much of a factor in remote disadvantage is culture, and, and in particular the 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 matter of multiple generations living in living in a home at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this was addressed in that video, uh, particularly with the, the share mentality, which uh, Jacinta and her family can tell you all about. If you got someone who you know is trying to get out, you know, get a job at least, they're earning an income, but then the family come around and take what they feel they're entitled to, and you're left with nothing, uh, why would you bother getting a job? Um, so culture in that sense needs to, you know, be um, modified, held back. Uh, you know, certainly the crowding, when people pool their resource to, resources together, that can, again, sort of deter them from wanting to be more individual and get a job and, and look after the, themselves and their own immediate family as well. I'd like to pivot a little bit to the area of research. And of course, in your, in your main capacity, you work as a researcher at, at ACU, as we mentioned earlier. So is there not already though, it seems a lot of activity in the research space in Indigenous affairs. There seems to be a lot of research grants awarded to very large grants awarded right across from areas of social work through to education, through to health, I mean, you name it. How is it that we have so much activity, but it seems so few solutions? Yeah, look, one of the reasons, and I, I know this from some work I did for government, you get a lot of turnover and a lot of uh, seat swapping in government departments. So you'll develop a report for them, uh, but the person who receives that report is, at the end is different to the poor person who commissioned it in the first place. And that person who receives it, they're not really interested in it. And, you know, it just gets put aside. So with, you know, there's some good research and there's some questionable research, in my opinion, out there. But let's, if we look at the, the good research, um, let's suppose a researcher finds that for a community, what would really help that community is a bridge across the creek. Um, so, you know, there could be a deep creek that's separating community members and just a simple bridge will enable them to go back and forth and socialise, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it's, it's not up to the researcher to build that bridge. But once they've identified that the bridge is the solution, well, then there should be someone held accountable to then start building that bridge rather than there just be another report, another journal article that's sitting on the shelf. Um, and so, that, you know, that's kind of for the good research, but for some of the research research that happens, 
you just got to ask yourself, is this really necessary? Have we done it before or have we done something that's similar before? Are you sort of just tweaking something old and trying to make out that it's new research? And I would also argue maybe if you kind of take a, uh, and keep in mind, a lot of research in the universities, one of the aims is to get something published in a journal, okay? And, you know, you're not going to get something published which just says build a bridge. Okay? That's not journal article material. They want something more sophisticated. Um, and so taking a, you know, a bit of a Maslow's hierarchy approach, maybe we should, the research should be focused on what are those things we can do that will make a difference to people's physical well-being and their safety without getting too far down the track with coming up with some sophisticated questionnaire, doing some sophisticated statistical analysis, find out there's a particular mindset. And if we introduce this motivating factor, they'll have a different self-image, blah, blah, blah. You know? Do that further down the track. Build bridges, get jobs, get food on the table, uh, that sort of thing. And I think we've basically got a, you know, a lot of research, if not common sense, that already tells you what the solutions to those sorts of issues are. Uh, get those things fixed up and then you can climb further up as those hierarchy. Well, is it the case then that in some respects, actually the solutions are far more simple than what's made out in some of the research? But don't we actually have plenty, some role models and examples of success that, that simply just need to be scaled up? Yeah, I agree. Um, and again, those, those sorts of things, you know, if it's already done, you're not going to get another journal article out of that. So that kind of gets swept aside. But yeah, I agree. I mean, we know what... Um, works and it's basically the same thing that works for non-indigenous people so if we were to focus on that you know giving opportunities for people to feel safe have a sense of purpose which is often not always but a job you know having employment can give you that sense of purpose that sense of value knowing that you're contributing to those around you uh, and when that happens you're, you're less likely to engage in you know silly behaviors drug abuse and that sort of thing. So then communities are, are safer. Um, so, yeah, you know, we basically know um, what the solutions are. But, you know, again, coming back to this politicisation, mm -hmm. I think that can be a spinner in the works where there's this insistence of, um, okay, for a particular community, we know that they need a bridge to be able to cross the creek and not get eaten by crocodiles, but we've got to have Indigenous bri bridge builders was that self-determination and they can understand the cultural absolute nonsense. Um, you know, a bridge is a bridge. So, so issues about, so what are some of those sensitive issues that we, that we seem to fail to address? So self-determination, you know, so the issue that when it comes to procurement, there's sometimes a requirement that, um, so perhaps indigenous owned businesses or providers does that, is that is that really an obstacle to sometimes very simple solutions? Yeah, look, I'm all for Indigenous businesses um, and Indigenous doctors and dentists and teachers and bricklayers and all that sort of thing. That's great. But you shouldn't build those people or skill those people with the goal of they can only work with other Indigenous people. Uh, if they get their certificate, their doctorate, whatever, let them work wherever they, they want to work. Uh, I do a bit of private practice as a psychologist. I have some Indigenous clients. 
and I have non-Indigenous clients as well. And I'm doing the exact same psychology with each one. Um, coming back to that point, for the Indigenous service provider, they can work wherever they want, servicing whichever people they want. And also for the Indigenous client, they should be getting uh, the best service. And that best service isn't determined by colour or culture, but by competence. Uh, now, if you have a, a great Indigenous bridge builder, great, use them. But if the, the most convenient one happens to be Croatian or whatever, fine, employ them as well. Um, so we shouldn't um, you know, use the culture as a barrier to thinking, oh, well, only Aboriginal people can understand Aboriginal people and only Aboriginal people should be helping Aboriginal people. That is basically separatism, which simply doesn't work. Let me take another one from the audience here. And that, that's, that's effectively asking, are there communities out there that have been really successful in... in I'll answer this question so, so long as it's not from another Anthony. Can't be another. <laughs> we are, we are, we are. It's, it, our our group today is absolutely populated, full of Anthony's. I don't know what you did, Anthony, ahead of this. Whether you gave a shout out to all the others, others out there. So, help us out. What are, are there communities out there that, that you're aware of that are successfully tackling the the, the nature of these problems? Yeah. Um, look, there are there are certainly pockets of success out there, and again, uh, Warren Mundine has highlighted this. Um, any show mundane means business, which used to be on. Um, yes, so there, there are certainly success stories out there. Um, you know, perhaps whole communities, uh, are, you know, whole successful communities are less common, but certainly examples and pockets of success, which just simply show, hey, it can be done, you know, with the right sort of support and scaffolding, it can be done. Great. Look, we're going to get to our last question here. It's going to be a prickly one for you. Um, we can't, we can't not, we can't not discuss. Uh, I suppose what's what's been on everyone's minds in the last few weeks, and that's that's the revelations around dark emu. Um, so, my my question: Should we be optimistic that the narrative has kind of been challenged by by evidence, and, and or should we really be pessimistic that that some some element of groupthink really kind of won the day for for several years. Both, I think. I'm I'm pleased that it has been challenged, but I am a bit disappointed that there hasn't been a quick response from the, the Pasco camp and the publisher, and also his supporters, um, high profile supporters. At that, should I name them? Well, Ken Wyatt, Marcia Langton, Stan Grant. Uh, and they're three individuals who have all done very well for themselves and who all, you know, who all obviously have Indigenous ancestry. But it's been a bit disappointing to see that they have sort of backed Pasco as being an Indigenous man. Um, so that's wrong. And there should be, in the absence, especially in the absence of there being any um, unequivocal support that he is of Indigenous ancestry, it should be okay. Clearly, you're not, and you know, give back whatever goods you've received, um, or at least be stripped of any um, current um, privileges you have. Uh, so it's been disappointing to see that that hasn't happened because, from what I've seen, unless 
Pasco camp are holding on to some secret which they're going to release shortly. I don't think it's looking very good for him. And, you know, just on that, we've had a, a few people, um, Keane, Andrew Bolt, uh, Peter O'Brien, sort of weigh in and bravely say, hey, you know, this Nakim is not good. And then more recently, we had, you know, the, the best of the best, Peter Sutton uh, and Karen Walsh give their, their masterpiece book, which has just been done in such a positive spirit. There's no hate in there. They're just, they're just revealing facts where it's really hard for the Pasco camp to bounce back from that one. Um, and their way of bouncing back has to just be to be quiet or say, oh, yeah, I welcome a debate, I welcome disagreements. Um, but saying you welcome a debate isn't a debate. It's just words. So but has, has evidence and truth won the day, ultimately? Um, it's, it's there. I wouldn't say as, for as long as um, Pasco camp can go unchallenged, oh, well, you know, not have to, you know, make any formal statement, um, you know, the publisher of the book or uh, his university, without them making some statement, um, they're kind of winning at present. I hate to say it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we've kind of had a small victory. But until the other side take it and either challenge it or affirm it, no, we haven't got a full victory, in my opinion. Well, interesting times ahead on Dark Emu and others, I'm sure. Thanks, everyone that's joined us today. That's all we have time for. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful to be back with my CIS family. Um, and something I, I want to mention earlier on too with, you know, the uh, what you said about me, I'm all, you know, I've been with CIS for a long time. Uh, so I've always been part of the family and it's good, just good to know that CIS are out there. But uh, speaking these truths and giving opportunities for others to speak the truth and also giving opportunities for people to challenge them which is what we need, you know, in this cancel culture era, we need people like CIS who say, hey, we're happy to be challenged. I couldn't have said it better myself. A great plug for CIS there. Thanks, Anthony. Uh, you can follow Anthony's work by visiting his website, anthonydillon.com.au. Again, thanks for everyone that's joined us here online. Uh, a reminder to, to do check out our, our recent video, Desert Voices. Um, I hope you find that one to be in interesting. Uh, and that's it for episode 58 of On Liberty. Next week, Salvatore is back in the hot seat. He'll be joined by Armel Rebuffe. She's from the French Trade Commission. She'll be talking about Bastille Day as well as Australian-Franco trade relations. For our French viewers out there, uh, bon fait national à tous. And for everybody else, we hope to see you again next week. Until then, bye for now.